All right, I invite you to grab a Bible and go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's probably a black one in a little rack right in front of you, right below your chair there. Uh, Passage Scripture is in your bulletin uh, as well as on the screen. And so we are uh, finishing up a series on identities uh, that we started a few weeks ago. And uh, just kind of the core idea that we've tried to lay before us is that kind of our behavior and what we do flows out of who we are. And when you uh, declare Jesus as Lord, or when you become a Christian, in that moment, there's a, a fundamental change about who you are. Your, your reality, your personhood changes instantly. But at the same time, as we've said over the last three weeks here, it's also an invitation to become, right? So yeah, a change in an instant, but there's also an invitation to become. So we talked about being a child of God. That's who you are. When you declare Jesus as Lord, you are instantly a child of God. But there's an invitation to become, live into this reality of being a child of God. And one of those things that kind of we have to live into is, is continually believing that God loves you. I know it's crazy, but it is. It's a continual growth that God loves you, that he is excited about you, and that, man, he sings over you. And that is a, a continual uh, becoming. It doesn't just get clicked in there. It's a lifelong journey of us learning and seeing how much God loves us. You're a disciple, right? That's an instant. When you declare Jesus as Lord, that moment you are a disciple. But also it's an invitation to become, that we would grow in listening to the very words of Jesus, that we would uh, do our best to try to, you know, drown out the sound and the noises of our culture and step into some times of silence and solitude so we can better hear the voice of Jesus. And then we talked a little bit last week about being a witness. And this is who you are. And what we want to live into is we want to become a people that are hospitable, where we pursue after the stranger, where we share our home and we share our life. And so today, we're talking about family. And so we're kind of circling back around here. I kind of bookend these on purpose. And so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, praying that the Lord would uh, kind of open our eyes in a fresh way to what it really means uh, to be family here uh, at our church. All right? So let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. So I think in your bulletin, it just has verses 31 through 35, and I have a tendency to kind of switch things up uh, after the bulletin's been printed. And so we're going to actually read verses 20 to 35, and we will focus on just those four verses at the end, but I want to kind of give us the context here a little bit. All right? Uh, so here we go. So Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered around so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family, Jesus' biological family, heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from the Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, said, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so Jesus summoned them and spoke to them in parables. And he said this, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless first he ties him up, the strong man, and then he can plunder his house. Verse 28, truly I tell you people, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never 
has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, here's the deal. I'm not dealing with verses 28 through 29 today, all right? So some of you are a little wigged out about that. So if you've got any questions, Pastor Ty Thorne would be more than happy to help you with that. And his email address is, no, I just love you, brother. So maybe I'm, I'm joking a little bit. All right, here we go, verse 31, all right? Uh, here's where our focus is. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Look at those sitting in a circle around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, each time we gather together, man, we are, um, yeah, we, we hear from you. We sing your word. We listen to your word. And we always cry out for help during this kind of period of time here that we would understand, Lord. We, we can't get what you're saying without the spirit coming and open up our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts. All of this, God. We need your Spirit's help. And so we're asking for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, so here's what I'm trying to do uh, this morning. So Mark 3 is kind of a foundational passage for us when we talk about this identity uh, of family. Because in this, you'll see in, in a minute, I'm not getting ahead of myself. Uh, Jesus is kind of radically redefining who is related to him. Another thing that I'm trying to do today um, is, is, and I kind of got this from listening to uh, some of what we're singing about, listening to some of uh, what Elliot was saying there in the area where we were kind of lamenting and confessing together. I'm trying to kind of help us see what does it look like to be family kind of in this in-between time. And, and what I mean by that, in case we're a little confused there, so the, the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. This, this movement of God is happening, but we're not experiencing it in the fullest. All right? You, you follow me? So just in case you don't follow me, just turn on the news, right? We're not experiencing King Jesus ruling and reigning in the fullest yet. We're not there yet. We still get sick, Right? You know, newsflash and the new heavens and the new earth, we don't get sick anymore. Amen? Right? So we got kids going back to school right now, and they're all big germ magnets and germ bugs, strep throats going around, the stomach virus is going around. There's coming a day when that doesn't happen anymore. But we're not there yet. It's not in full. So right now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we live in this in-between. And if we don't recognize that we live in this in-between, we can want something that's only promised in the new heavens and the earth right now that then will cultivate frustration and disappointment. And we'll get disillusioned. And we'll say this Christianity thing doesn't work. And I kind of want to deal with that in the context of family. So what does it really look like for us? Or what do we need to know 
about being family kind of in this in-between place. And so you could pray for me as we work through this because I, I have some ideas of what I want to kind of say and sometimes it comes out really well and I got notes here and so we'll kind of see what happens because some of this all right, is, is also kind of coming from being your pastor for seven and a half years, almost said 70 years. Oh my gosh, all right, seven and a half years, right? I'm not 105, whatever. But, but being your pastor here for over, you know, seven years, uh, there's a lot of observations that I've seen, that I've experienced, that I think is really helpful for us. You know, I wouldn't share this in year two, right? It's like, ah, oh, you need a little more time, Lyle. But year seven, I, I, I think I can do this without losing my job, amen? All right, so, and the other, other element to this that I'm kind of processing is we did a, um, a little health survey uh, over our, the church at large, sent out a survey back in May and June, encouraged you to fill it out. We had over 200 people fill out this health survey. And, and a lot of that was basically uh, kind of asking um, for your frustrations. That's kind of what it was. And so there was, you know, if I'm just being honest and putting all the cards on the table, there was a period of Sundays when I'm coming in here going, everybody hates this place, right? It's like, nobody wants to be here. But that wasn't that true, right? Because we're just, we're wanting to hear what you're struggling with, what your frustrations were, so that we can better serve you, come alongside you, help, maybe change some things, tweak some stuff. So, so right, like, that's part of it. We wanted to do that. And at the same time, there, there are some things, I think, that we need to talk about as a family, and I'm hoping uh, that that comes out in what I talk about today, all right? So now that everybody's really confused, let's just jump into the text, amen? So here we go. We got to remember that, um, that Jesus just doesn't show up on the scene at 30 years old, right? Like he just doesn't like appear. Boop! There's Jesus. He's a 30-year-old man. I'm here for three and a half years. Let's go, right? That's not, that's not what happens. God chooses to bring Jesus into a family, a family of imperfect siblings, right? Brothers and sisters who are probably extremely annoying because we have brothers and sisters who are extremely annoying and it wouldn't have been different in Jesus' family. He was in a family with an imperfect mom and dad. All right? Yes. Yes, the birth narratives help us see that Mary and Joseph had impeccable character, godly young woman and a young man there. Yes. But at the same time, they are not sinless. You follow me? So because they're not sinless, they did things that hurt, that wound, that make it difficult. I mean, that's, that's what he was birthed into. So look, look, the stress that some of us are feeling because we've been invited over to our extended family for a Labor Day, and we're already feeling anxious about going over there and Making sure everybody's happy, avoiding these topics, smiling, greeting one another. You know what I'm saying? Like, can I get a little bit of an amen? Am I the only one that feels this every once in a while, right? Even though, you know, I've got some family in here right now, and I'm a little nervous about saying this, right? Well, the reality is this. Look, God added that stress in Jesus' life. He gets it. He understands the difficulty, the pain, the struggles. That family brings. And we see it here, don't we? I mean, go, go all in verse 20, verse 20 here in chapter 3. Look what it says here. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again. So they were not even able to eat. And when his family, his mother, some of his siblings heard this, 
they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. You skip down in verse 31, his mother and his brothers come and standing outside, they sent word to him and called out to him. Listen, I'm telling you this, they're not sending word to him and calling out to him to bring him back outside. Oh, you are such a good guy. Oh my goodness, I knew you would grow up to be a great prophet. You're the next Billy Graham. I just love you. You know, even though they didn't know Billy Graham, you know what I'm talking about, right? But that's not what happened. They're wanting to set him straight. You're out of your mind. And we see this all over the New Testament with Jesus. His ministry was always marked by confusion. It was always marked by mixed, you know, mixed responses and, and outright rejection. And so we, so we kind of get it with the religious leaders, right? I mean, they are like, come on, for real? Like, he's casting out Satan by the power of Satan? Like, that's dumb, right? It's like, come on, guys. So we kind of get it, and when the religious leaders reject him, we get it when his 12 disciples that spent three and a half years with him, they never get it. Their, their constant physical posture is this. Huh? What, what just happened there, Jesus? What? Right? That's their constant posture. Confusion, not sure what's going on here. But look, his family... If there's any person on the earth that you want to get behind you, it's your mom and dad. It's your brothers and sisters. And and here they are, guys, standing outside this house, basically saying, man, you are insane. You're a crazy person. If you're anything like me, sometimes what what we have a tendency to do when we read the Bible, especially in the, the four Gospels where there, when we read the story of Jesus' life, we have a, we have a tendency um, to not realize how human Jesus was. We, we, we forget that. We feel like in a scene like this, we, we go by it really quick thinking, I didn't bother Jesus. He's God. He doesn't give a rip about that. No. It would bother you And you're a human being. So guess what? It bothered Jesus. He was fully human. These are wounding, painful, hurtful words. Look, Jesus is no stranger to some of the chaos and the mess that you feel in your family. Jesus is no stranger to some of the wounding impact that a parent or a sibling can have in your life. Jesus gets it. He was fully human and fully God. But look, look how he responds to this. Verse 33. So he replied to them after they asked him to come outside there, and he says this question, right? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, if we just stop here for a second, like this is pretty offensive, isn't it? I mean, even in our time, it's really offensive. And you can imagine how offensive it was in this time when family was everything. Like, you don't dishonor the family. Like, that's, that's huge. They, they trump every human relationship, even the marriage relationship. Like, you honor mama and brother and sisters and dad. Like, you do that. You especially honor mama. Can you imagine, just for a second, moms, your 30-year-old son saying this to you, to a crowd of people, who's my mother? I'm not a mom, obviously, 
But I'm, if I was a mom, I'm walking in there going, let me remind you who, my, who your mama is, right? And you know these people went through two days of labor to bring you into the world. Let's just have a little moment here, you 30-year-old man. Yeah, yeah, I get that, right? But look, Jesus is not trying to wound or hurt or be offensive. He's not sinning here because he was fully God. He was sinless. He's helping redefine for us who actually are related to him. What does it mean to be related to Jesus? He's redefining for us this idea of family that moves beyond blood. I mean, look what he says here in verse 34. So looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said this, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And so what is happening here, a way of answering the question that, that Jesus lays out in verse 33 is basically this. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? It's anyone who Jesus is in charge of. Are you following me? That's what he's doing. That's to answer the question. Who's, who's my mother? Who's my brother? It's anyone who Jesus is in charge of. And you see this by the way Mark creatively bookends this. If you go to 21 again, and we read it, it says, When his family heard this, they set out to do what? What does it say there? Restrain him, which can also mean take charge of. So they're trying to kind of exercise their authority over Jesus, take charge of him. And then we skip all the way down to the verse 35, this, the ending of this paragraph, and we see Jesus saying, no, no, the people that are properly related to me are the ones who I am in charge of. And so the family that God is recreating is going to be characterized by a people whose Jesus is their king. He is their Lord. He calls the shots. He tells us how to live. He shows us what it looks like to be a human being. That's what he means by whoever does the will of God. And sometimes when we read that, we're like freaking out. Like, oh my, does that mean i got to work for it? That's what it kind of feels like. That I gotta, I've got a standard, i got a checklist that i got to meet before I can get in the family. No, because later on in John chapter 6, Jesus clearly defines for us what it means to do God's will when he says this. God's will is that you would believe in him whom God has sent. So who is it that does the will of God? What does that mean? It's anyone who believes in Jesus. That's it. So how do I get in the family of God? How do I get in this family? No. It's not about you rolling in a church here. Not about you doing all this. Not about you having this impeccable, amazing character. No. It's you putting your faith and trust in Jesus. That's it. That's the only qualifications. So anyone can get in. Amen? So listen, look. Like we come kind of full circle here, right? We started off with we are children of God. God's our Father. We started off week one. Now we're a part of this family. So whenever we put our faith and trust in Jesus in that moment, listen to this. These are reminders. God becomes your father. Your sins are completely forgiven, fully, past, present, future. You have new life, brand new slate, clean, conscience is cleared. You have a brand new identity. You have a huge inheritance that's coming to you. Amen? Yes, a huge one. All right, and at the same time, look, 
in that moment, you now have new brothers and sisters because you have been adopted into this family that God is creating. So just as, look, we said this, just as there is no Christian who's not a disciple, right? You're a disciple, right? You become a Christian, you're a disciple. There's no like separate categories. Just as there is no Christian who's not a witness, like you're a witness, right? When you trust Jesus, the very power of God is in display in your life, and you're a witness to that. It's not a training course. You're a witness. That's who you are. So is the same. Is that a Christian is also someone who is connected to the church. There's no place in the Bible where these two things are separate, where I have a personal, individual relationship with Jesus, but I don't give a rip about the church. Or the language we would use in our culture, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And I get that. I do. I, I get it in verbally. I get what we're trying to say in essence there. Because there's ways the church has wounded us where we don't really want that whole deal. But we love what Jesus can do for us, right? But here's what you see in the Bible. They're together. They're one. At the moment that you connect with Jesus, you connect with God, you have a relationship with him, and you connect with his people. You are a part of this family. And so look, like, and I'm not advocating that we start doing this. I'm just trying to give an example. So Ty is just not, Ty is just not one of my friends and colleagues and brother. That's who he is now. He's a brother. Yeah, he's all those other things, but he is my brother. Heidi, his wife, she's my sister. That's who she is now. And we can go around here all over these, this place. For those who are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying that we need to call one another that. I'm just saying that's how we need to kind of see one another now. We are family. That's who we are. Now, when I say that, Here's what I, like, just trying to step into this. When I say that, there are many of us in this room who go, amen, right? I love the idea of having family, got some more people. Man, I'm so excited, yes! But then there's a lot of us who go, oh, no. Right? The last thing you want is more family. I mean, the reality of it is, is a lot of us come in here with a lot of mixed emotions when we talk about this idea of family because some of us have families, biological families that are really messy, and that's probably an understatement, amen, right? One novelist says this, all families are psychotic. <laughs> amen, right? They are. And here's, here's the reality sometimes that we've got to get around as moms and dads who are in the midst of raising our kids. Here's the thing. We think, oh, it's so much better, right? That's, what we, that's our mindset. Like, our kids complain. My kids are saying all the time, like, Dad, you're yelling at me. You have no idea what yelling is, right? You should have been in my family, right? Let me show you what yelling is. You have no idea, right? You, have you ever said that? Like, you're, it's way better for you than it was for me, amen? Have you, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only guy that's ever said that to his kids. And it's like, but here's the truth. 
Your kids experience this family, your family. And the reality is this, guys. As much as we try to do our best, and as much by the grace of God we're moving the needle forward, we're still imperfect moms and dads who wound, who hurt, who disappoint, and who create pain in our children. And there's going to come a day, I know this is hard to hear because it's hard for me to hear, that 30-year-old kid may be sitting across from a therapist and going, man, let me tell you about my family. Wow. You want to know why I'm like I am? Here's my jacked up home, right? No one, no one escapes the sin that creates such dysfunction in our homes. Nobody. So when I say we're family, there's all kinds of mixed emotions, right? For some of you that grew up in a healthy biological family, awesome. That sounds great. For others of us, man. It's pretty scary. And for some of us in this room, when I say the church is a family, that creates a lot of mixed emotions, doesn't it? Because some of you come out of context where you've been abused by a spiritual leader who was there to protect, guide, and shepherd you, and they failed. And so when I say things like, You get to be in God's family forever. And the people sitting right next to you forever, right? Some of us are going, (laughs) it's like the little golf clap. I know I'm supposed to be happy about that, but I'm not really happy about it, right? There's all kinds of mixed emotions that are at play when we say we're family. But no matter What your experience has been, the promise of our loving God is that he is making all things new. Our God draws near to the brokenhearted, and he will tend to your wounds. Although your family or even your church family may have been the source of your greatest pain, hear me, listen to this. God desires to use a loving church family to be the source of your greatest healing. I'll say it again. You please hear this. Yes, although our families, both biological and church, can be a source of some of the greatest pain, God desires to use a loving church family to be the source of your greatest healing. And for that to be a, a, a kind of a growing reality, We have got to embrace or take into account the both and of church, not the either or of church. I'll say this again so I don't lose you, all right? For this to be a growing reality where God wants to use a loving church family like this to heal some of your greatest wounds. For that to be a growing reality in your life, you've got to take into account or recognize The both and of the church, this church community, not the either or. And here's what I mean by that. We need to recognize that as a church, the people of God, that it's both pathetic and powerful. It's not either or. And so for some of us in this room, maybe you hear that and you go, I don't like the word pathetic. I don't either. It's like... 
Because I'm talking about myself. I'm not a part of, like, outside of this community. I'm in this community. I'm a part of this family. And so if you don't like pathetic, I'm just using it for the P's, right? Got two P's there. It makes us remember. And we've used that language a little bit here. So we can use the word messy if we want to. We can go messy, all right? But I don't think it really captures the essence of what goes on in a church family. It's sometimes really pathetic. And here's where I get this, all right? We'll start with the pathetic part and land in the powerful part and hope you'll leave out here encouraged. Amen? That's what my goal is. We'll see. All right, here's what, where I get that. In this passage of Scripture that we just read, where's the family? Where's Jesus' mom and dad? Where's the brothers? They're outside the house. Who's inside the house? It is crammed full of sinners. Broken, unimpressive, messy people. And in essence, what it seems like is happening here as the family, the biological family, is calling for Jesus to come out, they're basically saying, hey, Jesus, you don't mess around with people like that. That's not the kind of people we hang out with. We're, we're upstanding, you know, Jewish family here. You don't have relationships with messy, broken, sinful people that are crowding this house. You need to get out away from there. And in essence, what I think Jesus is saying here is, no, this is where I belong. And in fact, it's where you belong. Because my community that I'm recreating, my family that I'm recreating, is going to be full of these kind of people that are in my home. Because the church is not a community that's formed by people who are impressive. Or, or formed by people who, who follow all the rules and get in because of their righteous Great, good behavior. No, the church is a community that is formed by grace. And the only way you get in is through the immense sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so God is putting together a family of people that are messy, broken, sinful, unimpressive. That's the church. And Jesus is going, I'm not going out there. I'm staying right here because this is where I belong and this is where you belong. So look, look, because this is the type of people who make up the church, then it will make the community, the relationships that you try to engage in this room, kind of pathetic. Because we're people in process. We still sin in present tense, not past tense. Amen? Amen. Not amen. It's not like I'm trying to excuse it, right? I, I did just say that. Sorry about that. If you shook your head and said amen, I'm with you, all right? I think you know what I'm saying, right? We're broken people. We don't know how to have healthy relationships. We're still trying to figure this out. See, the church is not just made up of like-minded people who are trying to get together and mutually encourage one another. No, the church is made up of people from all different backgrounds, all different family of origins, all different places of life, mixtures of different colors and skin colors and economic stuff. We're trying by the power of God to transcend these differences and be a family. And in the process, man, that's messy. And it's not just messy, it's kind of pathetic. We'll say things that 
hurt people's feelings. See somebody at Walmart or Kroger and we're tired and exhausted. We run into a church member or whatever and we say the filter wasn't there, right? It's like, oh, they'll leave and they'll go, man, that's kind of hurtful. You'll leave and you go, wow, why did I say that? That was so wrong, right? You'll disappoint. You won't follow through like you said you would follow through. You won't pray for them like you said you would pray for them. You won't sign up for meals when the community group has these meals things and they'll think, well, do they not love me or do they love me what it does? Well, we complain. I complain, it's too loud, it's too soft, it's too cold, it's too hot. I really liked it when we had the pink walls and the carpet was falling off and, you know, we had like daggum wine stains all over our carpet. I just loved it back then. It was so awesome. Now, oh, it's just too nice. I just don't like it, right? Like, that's legit. And then we've got others that are just kicking, you know, kicking tail. Man, they're serving all the time. They're, they're everywhere. They're here at 6 o'clock in the morning, leave at 4 in the afternoon, whatever. I'm being kind of goofy and silly right now. But we got people that do that. And here's the reality. If that's you, sometimes what happens there is you kind of cultivate this pride and self-righteousness. And you start looking at all the consumers. Look at all those daggum consumers. I'm not a consumer. I'm just amazing. Right? You'll never say that, but that's what we feel in our own lives. Or, or we get bitter, right? No one's recognizing me. Look at all I'm doing around here. No one's patting me on the butt. Give me high fives, whatever it is. Look, I get maybe this is not great for PR, right? I thought I might be safe doing it on a holiday weekend. I don't know if I was safe, right? But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of at a place where I realize there's been a lot where I've overpromised. And underdelivered. I think pastors in general have been have been guilty of this is a big word, but giving an over-realized eschatology where we're promising you something that maybe not, will not be a reality until the new heavens and the new earth, and we're saying, "Hey, it's going to happen now." And I just want to acknowledge that when we have a group of people who are being formed and shaped into a community that comes in by grace and grace alone, it's going to be marked by a lot of sin. You're going to get hurt here. Things will not work out like you think they will. And you've got to take that into account when you step into a community like this. If not, look at me, look, look. You'll get bitter real fast. You'll get disillusioned real quickly. You'll be disappointed. And you'll push the eject button because you can. There's hundreds of churches out there. When this was started, there was one. Where are you going to go? <laughs> right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in his little book called Life Together. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. You hearing that? And just sit with that for a minute. He who loves his dream of community, kind of his fantasy, his idealized illusion of what this is going to be like, more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. 
The best way to illustrate this, in case you get confused from that, and I hate to always use marriage illustrations, but just bear with me and humor me, and I'll try to bring in some illustrations later on. But look, I deal with a lot of young marriages, and here's what we find out in a lot of young marriages in the first 12 to 18 months. They have all these expectations. They come in with a fantasy, right? This is how it's going to be. I'm going to come home, and my wife's going to be so excited to see me every day. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be intimate every single night of the week. It's going to be amazing, right? There's not much humor in that one. Please laugh a little bit. Not the little negative, right? But what happens there, we all have all these expectations. And here's the reality. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the marriage when they don't meet these expectations. It just means that the first year, two, three years of your marriage life, you're starting to learn what is a fantasy. What is not real? What was just a dream? And actually, if you don't acknowledge that, you will destroy the marriage because you're trying to get something out of your spouse that your spouse was never created to give you. But when you begin to acknowledge that those were just fantasies, expectations that will never be met, you can step in and begin to work on the real marriage that God has given you and all of its brokenness and messiness. And the same way with community here. All of us come in with expectations. All of us come in here. Look at how many people are represented here. Over 500 adults roll in here on, on a given Sunday. And all 500 of those have an expectation, right? And some of those are legit. But some of those are a fantasy. They're a dream. And as long as you grab a hold of that dream at the expense of the community that God has given to you, then you're going to be disillusioned, disappointed, frustrated, bitter. Instead of acknowledging, hey, maybe, maybe I'm trying to get something out of this community that's only reserved for what I get out of my relationship with God. One more quote, and I'll be really quick here. This is from a guy named Rich Plass and Jim Colefield in their book called Relational Soul. And he says this, any experience of community will over time make our self-centered grandiosity quite clear. And community, our demand that life takes shape on our terms, eventually comes out. And community, our insistence that others be what we need and want them to be is sooner or later exposed. A realistic awareness and appraisal of our personal limitations must happen in the church. Without this, we set ourselves up for unrealistic expectations that can never be fulfilled. We will demand out of our human relationships only what God can give and what he can provide. So please hear me, and I'll be quick on the powerful one, I promise, be five minutes. Please hear me, I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse, I'm not trying to defend. There are some of you in this room who have been deeply hurt by this church community, and there needs to be confession and repentance of sin there. Yes, and we want to continue to do that with you, all right? But some of us are disappointed and disillusioned with this community because you came in with an expectation that wasn't real. And maybe 
at the place of your disappointment is the way the Spirit of God is coming in and saying, look, that was a fantasy. That was not real. This church can't do that for you. That's what I can do. So look, we are a messy, unimpressive, pathetic group of people who are, by God's grace, uniting ourselves around the person of Jesus Christ and learning, learning how to love one another. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But not only is it pathetic, and I'll end here real fast, it's powerful. It's both and. It's not either or. Many of us in this room can come up here and give evidence and testimony to how this church family has had a powerful impact on their lives. And I think about some of the darkest days that my wife and I have gone through. If it was not for a church family, I have no idea where we would be. Their encouragement, their, their, their words that are timely, their prayers, the way that they carry burdens with us. Like literally, guys, I don't know where we would be. It's the power of a family like this that helps sustain and get you through very, very difficult seasons. Even times, and this may sound kind of weird, but I don't care. There's times when just an appropriate touch, a hug by a brother is what I needed. A brother in Christ that would just, no, no words, just a hug. And in that moment, you, you experience this love and embrace of God that's not like just, you know, out there. No, it's felt, it's tactile, it's tangible. A couple weeks ago when we did our, our healing prayer service, and John Renner's not in here, so I forgot to ask for permission, so forgive me. So he came back there and uh, just, like, he didn't have any words to say. He said, I don't know even what to say here, but I am really hurting. I just need someone to pray for me. And in that moment, man, this may sound really weird, but it's okay. I just sensed the Lord telling me to lean in. And when I let, leaned in, our head, foreheads met, right? So the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. We're going to start greeting each other with a nice little holy forehead touch, right? But in that moment, I mean, later on, John said, that's exactly what I needed. I don't know what happened, but just, just that physical touch, us touching our foreheads, communicated in a powerful way that sometimes words don't. That's what happens in this church family. My brother and his family are here today, and as most of you know, I went up there a few weeks ago to help drive them back to Kentucky as they were moving here. My brother was a pastor of a church there for about 21 years, and it was on a Monday morning, and they had a handful of their members there from their church that are making breakfast, cleaning stuff, throwing stuff in the boxes, trying to shove everything in this very small crate from U-Haul that was absolutely packed to the tilt. I mean, it's crazy. We're, that's nuts. And so they huddle around and getting ready to leave because we're done. And my brother starts to pray. And man, it reminded me of that passage of scripture in Acts where Paul was leaving the elders of Ephesus and they were weeping. I'm standing there. I, don't, I just met some of them for the first time. I'm crying. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, I'm not moving. I'm just here to move them back, right? Like, I don't even know you. But I am weeping. And in that moment, it's, it's almost like I felt like the Lord was saying, look, look at the, 
the, the power of how a bond can be established in one another who don't even share the same last name. But they do share in one name, and that name is Jesus. And that kind of relationship is deep and rich and powerful, and it will be forever. So look, maybe this is the weirdest way of trying to say this, but all I'm trying to do is I want you to step in here. I do. If you're not a Christian here, I want you to step in. How do you step in? Give your life to Jesus. Quit trying to do life alone. It doesn't work. If you're a member here and been coming for a while and you still feel disconnected, like we want to help as best we can, but you got to step in too and take a chance, take a risk because you're, you're going to probably get hurt because we're, we're, we're a people that are still in process. We're a people that are trying to learn how to love Jesus and love one another. Let's pray together.